The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. For so, for so, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You may be seated. And if you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, you can meet over by the kids zone area. Thank you, Courtney. My name is Steve Perkins, and I'm the father of one of your elders, Chris Perkins, and the father-in-law to his sweetheart, Kelly Perkins, and a grandfather to Mackenzie, Emma, and Caden Perkins. That's my claim to fame. Really glad to be with you here today, and I want to take this opportunity to share with you something that it took me many years to finally grasp and learn because of the background that I was raised in, and and this beautiful passage in Mark 10, which is just slightly ahead of where Ben and Jared are in this Gospel of Mark. I hope they'll forgive me for stealing their thunder ahead of time. But uh, this beautiful passage captures what gloriously I was able to learn, and I want to bring you along with me. So we are going to look at the significance of this passage, which was lost on me for a long time, and ask, answer this question. What does the whole Bible say about God and our children? And as we begin to dive into that, I want to make our way through this very short little narrative uh, with several questions that I want you to engage with, not out loud, but to join with me in answering them because they are questions that helped me years ago understand this and this glorious truth, I want it to be yours from this day forward. Would you join me in prayer? Let's ask God to bless our time. Father, the glory of the covenant of your steadfast, sure promise to be our God all the way through the history of our race from the beginning, from before the beginning of the creation of the earth until this very day, we give you praise. Not one promise that you have made has ever fallen to the ground. You made us, you give us life, you sustain us, and you delight in us as your children. As we look at this passage, O Spirit of God, come. Please void anything I say that might hinder understanding, because I am a sinner as well. Lord, let the glorious and wonderful heartwarming truth of your love for our children shine through in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we want to look at this passage. It's also recorded in Mark, I mean in Matthew 19 and in Luke 18, but because this gospel probably was narrated by Peter and written down by Mark, it's got an added detail in this version that will really fascinate and grab our attention. It's much more vivid 
and records something about Jesus' emotion that very seldom is said in the Gospels will be a powerful truth for us. We'll make our, make our way through this by answering, asking and answering some questions. So let me just read one more time this very short section of verses, and then we'll begin with our first question. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. First thing you need to know is that what this passage and the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke are talking about is babies. The Greek word is very clear. They're infants, just like Ben and A.C.'s little boy, 10 days old, that age of helpless child. We know partly from just how it's said. Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them. So even from the very earliest age, this question comes up. How does God see and what is his command about us and our children? So the first question I want you to engage with me in is this one. Why do you think were children being brought to Jesus? I know, I know it says in the text that he might touch them, but try to imagine what is behind the parents. Why are they doing this? What do you already know? having been invited into the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, what do you already know along with these parents? Think about what they had seen and heard about Jesus Christ. First of all, there was this huge national repentance under John the Baptist. When many, most, probably the majority of Israel went out to John and were being baptized in the, in the Jordan for the remission, the repentance of sins. They were bringing national broken hearts before God, that they had sinned against him, that they had abandoned him. And John was bringing them to repentance. John was doing what Isaiah the prophet foretold. He was paving the way, opening the way for the Lamb of God, the prophet and priest and king, Jesus, to begin his ministry. You remember the glorious picture of John baptizing Jesus, Jesus rising up out of the water, the spirit of God, the voice of God coming from heaven. This is my son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit of God coming down like a dove and descending on him where he dwelt in him with him throughout his ministry without measure. So this one is more than Moses. He's more than the prophet Elijah or any of their great prophets. The parents know this. They've witnessed this. And as he began his ministry in Galilee, you remember Mark says, Peter says, volumes of people, masses of people, many people from all around in the cities and in the countryside were coming to him. Why? He was healing them of all manner of diseases. He was speaking demons out of their lives. He was teaching like no one ever had in their lives. They had never heard authority like Jesus is teaching. In them, though we're not told exactly what they knew and felt, in them was the sense that there was something huge here. And like all parents, they wanted their children to be a part of it. They were bringing them to him. 
So whatever their reasoning, whatever their knowledge of Jesus, what it is really clear this, I think, and I hope you agree with me. They were bringing their children, their infants, their babies to Jesus to do something for them that no one else could do. And that's exactly where we are when we bring our children to him to do something for them. No parent, no pastor, no church, no club, no occasion or vocation can do for them. So that first question I think is clear. They wanted Jesus to do something that no one could do for them. And that's where we join them. Remember, when they are also men and women who have been part of the covenant people of God for hundreds and hundreds of years. They remember and they know their Old Testament scriptures that God in Genesis 17 spoke to Abraham and promised a child to come. He even gave him the name he was to have. And it was a miraculous birth. You remember, Abram and Sarah were too old to conceive or bear children. But God made that happen and brought Isaac to be and then began his covenant with Abraham. And he said words like this to Abraham. Abraham, I will be your God, not only to you, but to your offspring after you. I'm going to make with you an everlasting covenant. And later on in the chapter, God tells Abraham, when Isaac is eight days old, you are to circumcise him. And this will become the sign of my covenant, of belonging with me in the people of God, the people of promise. And that's significant. You know why that's significant first? Because God's covenant sign in the Old Testament was a bloody one. It was done on the organ of reproduction in the man, the covenant head of his family, so that he and his wife and his children and his descendants would all be holy to God, set apart to him, have his name on them. And it was to be done when they were babies. Why? Because there was never to be a day when they were not gods, ever. So as soon as they were able, eight days old, they were to be circumcised. And these parents knew that. They had come from that tradition. They knew that all the way through their history. They already thought and knew that they were the covenant people of God. And now they see and know that the covenant is coming to fruition. The kingdom is coming. And they want their children to be a part of it. That is why they were bringing their children. And that is how we enter in with them in bringing ours. Which leads us then to see what happens next in the text. So they're coming. They're bringing their infants, their babies and the disciples stop them. No, you're not going to do this. You're not coming. In fact, the text says it strongly. They rebuked them. They belittled them. They cast them out, forbid them to come, and, and Jesus saw it. Imagine what that must have been like. Well, we, we have a difficulty imagining until we see what happened when Jesus saw it. It says clearly in the text, he was indignant, which leads us to ask the question, why? Why was Jesus indignant when he saw his disciples refusing to let parents and loved ones bring their babies to him? The word indignant, when I was learning about this passage long ago, was a difficult word in the sense that we don't use it much anymore. 
If we're having strong feelings, what do we say? What do we say in our modern culture? We say, I'm upset, right? Or, or we say, I'm offended. Or we say something like that. Hardly ever will you hear anybody say, I'm indignant. Because that doesn't resonate with us anymore. But it's important that we understand what this means. What is to be indignant? In the original Greek in which the New Testament risen was written, this is a very strong emotion. And it's a reaction right akin and next to anger at something that is patently wrong or unjust. Um, let me try to illustrate it. You may be a, a, an animal lover, and I hope all of us are. Animals are created by God, beautiful in their way of glorifying him. And so driving down the road, one evening you see a guy get out of his truck with a burlap bag of squirreling, mewing kittens, and you watch them go to the river's edge and throw them in to drown them. Because they're not wanted. They're insignificant. If you love cats, what do you feel? This indignation rises in you. That's so wrong. That's so unfair. You're in the grocery store and see somebody loudly berating and beating their child for disobeying them. What do you feel? You feel this indignation. That is so unfair. That's wrong. It shouldn't be done. Or you feel that indignation when something that's incredibly important and precious to you is stolen from you. That's so wrong, and you're, you're angry about it. That's, in our cases, um, anger and indignation are often selfish and self-driven, but every emotion that the scripture records that Jesus expressed is pure. It's righteous indignation. And that leads us to ask why. Why was he indignant? Why did he feel this strong emotion akin to anger at watching his disciples forbid people bringing their babies to him. Well, there's two reasons I want to suggest to you. One of them, we're going to ask David, the shepherd of Israel, the king of Israel in his beautiful psalm, Psalm 139, to speak to us about it. The one reason I think that Jesus was indignant is that these babies were his by creation. I'm going to make a strong statement in just a second, but listen to these words from Psalm 139. David is praying to God, his shepherd, his king, and he says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David would shout to us and say, look, I was created by God and given life. The same way that Adam had this breath of life breathed into him and became a living soul. God does that for every baby that is born on this world. Every single one. There is no other natural process by which babies are formed and grow in their mother's womb and come out as human beings, breathing and kicking and crying and growing. No other process. 
Nothing was made, says John in chapter 1. Nothing was made in all the world apart from the word, which we find was made flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, nothing was made without Jesus, the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. These babies are his. He made them. They're his by right of creation. And doesn't he have absolute rights over what he makes? Yes, he does. What that means is you belong to him. And that means your children belong to him by right of creation. Maybe we could get a glimpse. Why was he indignant? Because his disciples were causing to be insignificant things that he has made. Wonderful, incredibly beautiful things. Infant human beings that bear his image. The second reason, probably, that Jesus was feeling this indignation is because they were his covenantally. This is something those parents understood better than we modern-day Americans do, but it's still nonetheless true. And we need a couple of other witnesses to help us understand that. So we're going to look up in the galley where one of the prophets, Ezekiel, is sitting, and Ezekiel is going to tell us what he told the people of Israel when he was writing to them about their faithlessness to their covenant God. In chapter 16, Ezekiel is writing about something that was abhorrent in Israel's practice in his day. One of the religions that had it seemed to have an irresistible pull on the people of Israel was the religion of Baal. Baal was initially a Sidonian Phoenician god, and he was a god of fertility. And the way that you worshipped him was you had sex with people. That's what the high places in the Old Testament were. There were places where there were temple prostitutes, and you went and had sex with them in order to placate Baal, the god of fertility, to send rain and make your crops grow. You can see why this religion has such power, because sex has such power in our lives but it was abhorrent because it was false and untrue. And one result of all of this prostitution were a lot of unwanted babies. So they had another God that they conveniently worshiped, also a God of the peoples around them that were forbidden by God for them to ever practice. In the Valley of Hinnom, outside of Jerusalem, where they burned the trash, they erected this big God, an idol, Molech was his name, his arms articulated, and he had a big open chest with a fire pit. They would take their unwanted babies and place it in this idol's arms, and with their incantations and cutting themselves and other things like that, they would cause the arms to rise, and their infant children fall into the fire pit into a screaming death. They worshipped a God who demanded they sacrifice their babies. Now, lest you think that that's just them, we would never do such a thing. Do we not, as a culture, sacrifice our children? We do. Ezekiel then says, speaking for God to the people, so declares the Lord God, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me. And these you sacrificed them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children 
My children, says God, you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire. In all your abominations and your warrings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your blood. And I carried you. I raised you. God, the covenant God is speaking to his people and he's telling them, these were my sons and daughters. You had no right to sacrifice them. They belong to me by covenant. And so we see Jesus is indignant, righteously indignant for these two great reasons. He's the creator of all children, of our children, and he's the covenant God of them. He owns them not only by creation, but by covenant. So all through the Old Testament of circumcision is the sign and the seal of God's owning the children of the people of God. And then in the New Testament, baptism becomes the sign and seal of God's owning his people, uh, people of believers. Then it's logical and normal and right that we take our babies and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because they're his. We're acknowledging it. We're just saying this is true. This is right. And we're engaging ourselves as parents into this incredible stewardship of bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Waiting for, teaching, praying for the day when the word of God brings faith into their hearts and lives. Number three, question number three. Jesus then teaches a very important and central lesson. When he says to them, as he, um, after he rebukes them and he was indignant, he said, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Our third question, and one I want you to ask in your mind is, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? What do you think it means? Well, I probably have given you enough information for you to come up with the right answer, but I'm not going to ask you except to tell you when God initiated the covenant of grace with Abraham, which throughout the Old Testament were taught is an eternal, everlasting covenant, and we're brought into this covenant in the New Testament by becoming believers in Jesus. When that covenant was initiated, it was a covenant of grace because as I've said, Isaiah's, Isaac's birth was miraculous and he was helpless when he was circumcised. Ah, wait a minute. So what we're saying then is Jesus is indignant, not because, or what does he mean when he says to receive the kingdom like a little child? He's not talking about being cute and innocent, innocent and giggly and cooing and all of the lovely, wonderful things that we love about babies and children. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you become like one of them. What he's saying and what all the Old Testament has illustrated is this attribute of being a child means to be helpless. Think about Ben and AC's little boy, 10 days old. He can't feed himself. He can't sleep. He can't burp. He can't change his diaper. He, he's helpless. And parents respond to every need of an infant. They do. They have to. 
And as they grow and become more self-reliant, a parent's stewardship becomes even more important. But the point is, when they're that age, they're absolutely helpless. And that's what Jesus is teaching you and me. We come to the kingdom, how do we come? Often, in our own minds, we come thinking, well, I'm not as bad as everybody else. Surely, God will look over my flaws and my faults and welcome me, right? No. When I come to hear Jesus, when I come before him, what do I bring? I bring nothing but demerit. Nothing but guilt, nothing but shame, no faith, no love, no repentance. None of these things are natural to me. I'm helpless. All of these things I need from him. And Jesus is saying, as powerfully as it can be said, this is actually the door to the kingdom. To be that helpless, to recognize it, to own it before him, to cry out, Lord, I'm unrighteous, make me righteous. I'm dead, make me alive. Give me faith where I have nothing but unbelief, where I've resisted you and run from you. Draw my heart to love you and obey you. Lord, this is all you and I am helpless. That's exactly where the Lord wants us and demands that we come to the kingdom. So that central lesson is so important for us. And that also means that there's no difference between us and our babies. (laughs) They're helpless, so are we. When they come into the kingdom helpless, so do we. Why would we refuse the sign of the covenant to them? Why would we wait until they can somehow figure out things on their own? They can't, they won't. Like we couldn't or won't. So it's the most natural and incredibly right thing to do, to put the sign of the covenant on our babies. Let me recap here before we ask the last question. Children are brought to Jesus to do what only he can do by them and by us. These children were created by him. They're precious and they're covenantally holy. God owns them as his then and now. They represent in their persons this core principle of the covenant. It's all of grace. Every bit of grace. If you're here and you're just visiting Restoration Southside and you're not sure about all of this, perhaps you're not even aware or know about the person of Jesus and something like this. Maybe you're so new and fresh but you're curious, then I would say You've come to the right place because that's all where we all are. And if you're curious and want to know what it means to come into the kingdom, please ask someone on staff, one of the elders, one, anyone, grab anyone and ask that question and get an answer for the good of your soul. Our last question then is, what does it mean for Jesus to bless them? Verse 16 is clear. He took them into his arms and he blessed them laying his hands on them. Um, If you sneeze, some polite person might say to you, bless you. Or they might say it in German, Gesundheit, which means God bless you. Um, Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Well, it's an old, old custom because 
Many, 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 many years ago, people thought that when you sneezed, you actually were very close to dying. And so they would say, God bless you. Meaning, I hope you keep living. I hope you stay alive. Now we do it without thinking or even knowing the background. But often in our case, when we use the word bless, we're thinking about somebody blessing somebody by being greater or richer or more powerful and then bequeathing that privilege or that wealth or that whatever, like a rich uncle blessing you with an inheritance that you didn't even know was coming. Or the dentist blessing you with a painless extraction of your tooth or Whatever a person of power and ability is blessing you, whether they say it, by giving you what, they, what you need. And what is it that they wanted Jesus to do by laying his hands on them? And what did he do when he blessed them? He blessed them, giving them everything they ever needed to be in the kingdom. Remember earlier in the book of Mark, the four friends bringing their paralyzed friend and letting him down through the roof and how startling it was to everybody in that audience and probably even to us for the first thing for Jesus to say to him is, what? Your sins are forgiven. And the people who hated him were hearing that. They knew that only God can do that. So here, only God can do this. Only Jesus, the God-man, can do this. He can bless them, meaning... I am giving myself my righteousness for you. I am going to pay for your sins, all of them, in the death that I will die on the cross, and the blood that I will shed, my body broken, and then a powerful resurrection. I will give you life where no one else can give you. And that's what the blessing these parents were seeking. And it's so in heart, it's so wonderful for us to realize that God loves our children this much. And he gives us as parents this incredible stewardship to teach them who they are, who God is, what they are like as they grow and one day begin to really grasp and understand how much Jesus, their creator and covenant God loved them and for them to respond in faith. It's a process of teaching and loving and living before them the reality and the truth. No one can bless our children like Jesus can. And when we baptize them in his name, he is laying his hands on them and blessing them. My sheep, said Jesus, hear my voice and they follow me and I give to them eternal life. That's how he blesses our children. This may have been an unusual sermon but it is a truth that is beautiful and it took me a long time to come to it. Um, our children, our three, Christopher and Kendra and Kate, we didn't really understand this reality until our first two were older. And so they were baptized when they were much older than babies. But as the truth of God's plan, God's covenant faithfulness and his love for our children dawned on us, we brought our infant daughter, Kate, our last one, to be baptized as a baby. And let me tell you, now that she's 31 and he's 47, 46, 47, and Kendra's 31, 41, I'm sorry, there's 10 years between our two girls, we have seen God be faithful to our children who loved them and cared for them. Christopher was 16 
Ah, you know I miss Chris. For some reason that we still do not know to this day, he suffered something that um, was incredibly scary to us. I got a call at work from Cindy. Cindy was calling me. She said, "Hun, you got to come home. There's something wrong with Christopher. He tried to pour milk. He missed the bowl. Um, he fell trying to get out of the shower. His ability to speak and to move diminished visibly in just moments. When I got there, he couldn't speak or move. A 16-year-old healthy boy. What as a parent is going to run through your mind? Aneurysm, stroke, paralysis for life, any, we, any of those things. Severe, we don't know. It's obviously something in his head. And I remember carrying this strapping 16-year-old boy out to the car and driving him to the, the doctor's office. Kate was just a baby. Cindy had to arrange for her mom to come and take care of her. And then she joined me there. The doctor took one look at him and said, he's got to go to the emergency room now. And so I remember driving in the car. Cindy rode with him in the ambulance. I drive in the car and it hit me that God owned my son, that he belonged to him and he loved him and he would care for him no matter what happened. If he was taking him home now or if he was going to be an invalid and we would care for him that way, it didn't matter. It just washed over me and I was crying and driving and I said, God, he's yours. You love him, care for him. So he was in a hospital for three days in a coma. To this day, we don't know what caused it. The third day, he woke up speaking and talking. And you see, God gave him back to us. But he taught me that lesson. He belongs to God. Your children belong to God. Put their name on him. Love them. Teach them. And lastly, if you're in this church and you're not married or, or don't have children, would like to have children, all those things God gives. But remember this, this is the family. The children that are in this church, uh, you, you have a part in their lives. You can learn their names and say hi to them. You can serve in the nursery. You can help their parents when they're in trouble or need help and advice. You, you can love the children of this church as much as you would love your own. And you can help raise them by teaching them in the nursery or in children's church. They are part of us. We are part of them. We are all children of God together, young and old. And this beautiful truth is because our God is a faithful covenant God. Would you pray with me as we end? Lord, as David said, your works are very wonderful. When we gaze into the face of the children of this church, we are filled with wonder and joy to see these little ones that belong to you, that you have created and given to us for a while. And we pray for great faithfulness among us to love them truly, to teach them accurately, to watch them grow and, and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord, um, would you get glory as you keep your everlasting covenant even in our lives and in the lives of our families. Hope you pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And, and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord, um, would you get glory as you keep your everlasting covenant even in our lives and in the lives of our families. Hope you pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.